All right, John chapter 3 in your Bibles this morning, John chapter number 3. And I want to draw our attention to one verse to begin with this morning. John chapter number 3, and I want to take you to verse number 30. John chapter number 3, just reading verse number 30. The Word of God says, He must increase, but I must decrease. He must increase, but I must decrease. It sounds very simple. It sounds very logical. It sounds very reasonable. And quite frankly, it sounds easy. He must increase, but I must decrease. Of course, properly understood in this context, John is speaking of the he must increase, is speaking of Christ. And of course, in the I must decrease, he is speaking of John the Baptist, he's speaking of himself needing to lower himself. In our prayers, in our churches, we begin often by lifting up the name of Christ. It is a, in a sense, it is an increasing of the name of Christ. It is increasing a awareness of him. But to fully understand what John is writing to us about is to fully understand what we've been talking about in the book of John, and especially in John chapter number 3. We've spent weeks in John 3 dealing with the realities of who Christ is. We've looked at his conversations that he had with Nicodemus and telling Nicodemus that he must be born again. We've watched Jesus have interactions with others, and we've even watched the Lord himself uh, say that he that believeth not on him is condemned. But we understand this morning that when we talk about increasing of Christ, there must always be a decreasing of ourselves. Now this sounds good for John. It sounds great that John the Baptist stood up and said, he, Christ, must increase, I, John, must decrease. But this morning, and again, I don't want to get too far off on this, ask yourself the question this morning, is that the call of your heart today? Is that Christ would increase and that you would decrease? Understand that anytime there's an increase, something else has to decrease. Something else has to lessen itself. John's statement is pointed humility. It's humility that is pointed, it is directed, and it's not just for John. It is for everyone who claims the name of Christ today. Christ must increase and I must decrease. Now, in order to understand the increasing of Christ, we need to understand that in order for the increasing of Christ, we're not talking about his stature in his humanity. Remember, John is speaking of Jesus who is still in bodily form. He's not talking about Christ increasing in the stature of his body. He's not talking about Christ needing to increase in his wisdom or his understanding of mind. He's not talking about Christ needing to increase in his fame or his credit or his reputation among men. John is speaking of the miracles and the doctrines that Christ is going to do, that he's going to publish not only through himself, but going to publish through his disciples. That's the increase that he's talking about. John's not talking about Christ needs to increase in his fame. He's not talking about needing to have a great reputation among men. He's talking about something much more spiritual and much more important than that. One day, Christ alone will be exalted. He will increase whether man 
increases him or not. As a matter of fact, the Bible declares already Christ is preeminent. He already is increased. But here John's saying, and remember, John has a unique relationship to Christ. John the Baptist was the forerunner who went before, and he was proclaiming the message of Christ, which was repent and believe the gospel. John's time is quickly moving off the scene. John's appointed hour to be this herald pointing people to Christ. It is now moving away from him. Later on, we know that John is going to give up his very life. He's going to be taken. He is going to die for the cause of Christ. Now remember, people held John in great esteem. and many, John the Baptist was, was so popular within the regions that he was, people began to say, this man must be the Messiah himself. As a matter of fact, if you were alive in those days, there was a following for John. John had a following of people. He was well known. He had a reputation among the people. Yet John the Baptist understood what his work was. My work was not to gain reputation. My, gain was not to, my work was not to, rep, to gain fame. My reputation among men values nothing if it has not been to solely elevate and proclaim the name of Christ. And folks, that's the truth for all of us this morning, that if our goal in life is something more than increasing Christ and decreasing ourselves, we've got our eyes on the wrong thing. Now, that's easy for us to say this morning. It's easy for us to say, preacher, I'm right with you. I'm going to go out today, and I am going to increase the name of Christ. But do you know in order to increase his name, you have to decrease? You have to lessen in your own value and your own importance. You might have to, you might have to sacrifice your desires, your dreams, your will, in order that he might be increased. John the Baptist understood what God had called him to do. He was a forerunner. Later on, we'll see this in just a moment, John is going to be cast into prison. John is going to go from being known and being one that many thought was the Messiah himself to being nothing more than another martyr for the cause of Christ. But folks, this morning, those words that John speaks, they ought to be the words of every believer today. He must increase and I must decrease. Now go back with me to verse 22. We'll pick up where we left off last week. It says, after these things came Jesus and his disciples into the land of Judea, and there he tarried with them and baptized. Now, in order for us to fully understand what's going on in John 3.22, I want you to hold your place there for a moment, and I want you to go to John 4, just one chapter over, and look at verse number 2. The Bible says, though Jesus himself baptized not, but his disciples. Now, it's important for us to see the connection here. The verse 4, chapter 4, verse 2, read in connection with verse number 22, when we link these two verses together, there's a principle that's being established here. And this is important for where we started. Chapter 4, verse 2 tells us that it was not Christ himself baptizing. It says he baptized not, but his disciples were doing the baptizing. Now, why does that matter? Because, folks, when we think about Christ, you realize that the servants of Christ, what Christ's servants do, whether they're his disciples or whether they're fellow believers, what servants of Christ do, they do by the authority 
as if Christ himself had done it. Okay, so in other words, the Bible's telling us here that Jesus himself was not baptizing the way John the Baptist was baptizing, but his disciples were. But do you realize every one of those disciples that was performing the baptisms was acting under the authority of Jesus Christ himself? It would have been just like being baptized by Jesus himself if one of the disciples of Jesus had baptized you. The important thing that we're looking at this morning is the Bible very clearly telling us here that as he tarried with them and baptized, John also was baptizing. At the same time that Jesus and his disciples were baptizing, John the Baptist was still baptizing. And notice what it says. Because there was much water there and they came and were baptized. There's another principle being established here. Not only do the disciples that do the work of Christ act under the authority of Jesus himself, but the Bible also declares that there is only one proper way of baptism, and it's by immersion. And this is a verse that teaches us that. Notice what it says. There was much water there. You don't need much water to sprinkle. You don't need much water to, to just simply put some, pour some water on the head. This is a picture of immersion. All these principles matter. Here you have Jesus tarrying here. There's baptisms going on. John is still baptizing. Christ and his disciples are baptizing. Verse 22 says he tarried there. He remained or simply stayed for a period of time. John's baptizing also. Again, we see the scriptural form of baptism here by immersion. The word baptized, whether it's in the Greek or it's in the English, signifies very simply to dip or to immerse. Folks, here ought to settle the whole controversy about what is the proper mode of baptism. It's by immersion. If the Lord authorized it, then it's authoritative. We don't have to guess anymore what is scriptural baptism. That's why we believe and practice scriptural baptism by immersion. It settles the controversy. Jesus himself, we know that when the Lord himself, God the Father, looked down upon Christ his son, Matthew chapter number 3 tells us that Jesus himself, he would have been baptized by immersion as well. Matthew chapter number 3, you don't have to turn there, just listen, verse 16 and Jesus, when he was baptized, went up straightway out of the water, and lo, the heavens were opened unto him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and lighting upon him. And lo, a voice from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. So you have Jesus and his disciples baptizing. You have John still baptizing. And then verse 24 tells us why all this is still happening. Why John's still baptizing, why Jesus and the disciples are baptizing, verse 24 tells us, for John was not yet cast into prison. John being cast into prison is a signaling of the end of a ministry. It's where John's ministry, in many ways, as far as being the forerunner for Christ, is going to come to an end. Now, I realize John the Baptist is going to have interactions while he's in prison. He's going to be brought before rulers. But ultimately, we know this. John the Baptist still had a ministry proclaiming Christ. But then notice as these things are happening, Jesus and his disciples baptizing, John is still baptizing, John's not in prison yet. Then there arose, verse 25, a question between some of John's disciples and the Jews about purifying. 
Now, understanding purifying this morning, these, these are what are referred to as purification rites, and this goes all the way back to the Mosaic Law. We're not going to unfold all that law this morning. But there's something more to this, this controversy. And let me just say this this morning, controversy usually has a secondary reason why the controversy is happening. In other words, the Jews were causing a stir. They were causing a stir to get their eyes, get people's eyes off of Christ and get their eyes on something of lesser matters. And you say, what do you mean by that? Notice the question between John's disciples and the Jews is not about Christ. The question is about purifying. It's about the Mosaic law. Now remember what the big problem has been. The Pharisees have been trying to live by this letter of the law. The Pharisees were all about tradition. These Pharisees were all about, hey, are you keeping these things? Not about looking to Christ. They were about looking to themselves. Now the interesting thing about this controversy is it doesn't tell us what the argument was about. We just know the topic. Purifying. Now to try to suppose or to guess what the controversy was, more than what the Bible says, would be stepping outside the boundaries of Scripture. It doesn't go into a dissertation as to why. But here's what we understand. Controversies are often intended to get a person or a nation or a people's eyes off of Christ. If I can get your eyes off of Christ and on the things of lesser matters, I can change an entire nation. I can change an entire church. I can change an entire family if I get your eyes off of Christ and I get your eyes onto things of lesser matters. Now, here's the reality about purifying, and we can't, we're not going to go into all the details about this. But we do understand that these same Jews are the same Jews that have been coming back and forth to Jesus and to John throughout this chapter. We have no way of knowing exactly what they're talking about, but the, the attempts for the Jews to take their eyes off of Christ. You know what the religionist loves? He or she loves strife over loving Christ. It's hard to believe, but there are people who love strife. There are people who love controversy. Matter of fact, there are people in this nation who don't have a job if there's no controversy. Their entire job is about controversy. Strife. You know what happens when strife increases? Christ decreases. You know what happens when you put aside controversy and you get your eyes on Christ and increase Him? He increases. This whole plan is to get people's eyes off of Christ and to get their eyes on questionable things that cause controversies. That's what's happening here. Now, what's their motive? Well, if one thing is happening, since Jesus has come onto the scene, a lot of people are now moving and going to Christ they're now coming unto him. We're going to see in just a moment that they're going to speak about this and they're going to say they're seemingly all coming to Christ. What's happening here? The Pharisees may be motivated by jealousy. They may be motivated by envy. But here's the one thing that we do know. Christ is increasing and suddenly the people don't like it. They don't like the reality that Jesus himself is now becoming seemingly higher in reputation. But again, that's not what Jesus is looking for. Folks, there's always contentions. There's always things to get our eyes off of Christ. You know, one of the most dangerous things that could ever happen to us, not as a nation, but as a church, is to get our eyes off of Christ. 
Many a church, that was its downfall. It was because it got its eyes off of Christ and put its eyes on something lesser. See, I don't think we fully understand what it means to increase Christ. We know how to say it, but I'm not sure we know what it actually means because in order for him to increase in our sight, we have to decrease ourselves. That means you have to put aside things that are all about you and say, I'm only concerned about the name of Christ being increased. It's a lot easier verse to read. As a matter of fact, you've already memorized it this morning. People say, I have trouble memorizing scripture. You all memorized a verse this morning. The problem is memorizing the verse is not living the verse, and it's not fully doing and understanding what this is really all about. And they came unto John. Now see this, this argument, this strife between John's disciples and the Jews. Now they come to John. And they came unto John and said unto him, Rabbi... He that was with thee beyond Jordan, the he here references Jesus. He that was with thee beyond Jordan, to whom thou bearest witness, behold, the same baptizeth, and all men come to him. Here's what these Jews are telling him. Uh, They're coming to him and they're saying, John, uh, do you know that this Jesus whom thou bearest witness, that means the person that you speak of, do you realize what he's doing? He's gaining a following. People are starting to come to him. Now, here's another interesting word there. Behold the same baptized. In other words, the person that you are bearing witness of and all men come to him. Now, let's settle something here. We know that that all doesn't mean that every single person who was alive then came to him. It's a general term that means it seems as if all people are starting to come to him. People from all different walks of life are now going to Jesus. Now, folks, if you don't see what's happening, what could potentially happen to John the Baptist here, you're missing it already. Here, John the Baptist has had a following. He has had people after him. He's been baptizing people day after day after day. As a matter of fact, there are people walking around town saying, we're disciples of John. You see what the temptation is? Even John the Baptist could have found himself in a place, hey, wait a minute, you're right. I've done all this for Christ. I've pointed to him. I've been the forerunner for him. Now people are leaving me and they're going to Jesus. You say, well, that wouldn't happen because this is about Jesus and John. And John the Baptist was some kind of a superhuman who was endowed with superhuman, supernatural, spiritual strength. The Bible says nothing about John the Baptist having supernatural strength that's beyond the strength you and I have. So what does that mean? That means he's human. That means he still had the same propensity and the same depravity, still had the same ability to get enthralled with the fame, to get enthralled with the reputation, and to say, wait a minute, wait a minute, stop. The reality here is, is their their attempt is to make Christ inferior These Jews are trying to make John, hey, make this Christ inferior to you. You know, there's so many applications in our life right here. There's so many things I could say about our own life where we become so enamored with ourselves. We become so enamored on what we do for God. We can sometimes get to the place where we think, what would God do without me? And you realize there's nothing that God needs for you to do. 
His kingdom is not going to end or stop with you. His kingdom is not going to be put on hold if you fail to live up to what you're supposed to do. But understand something here, that if you have been truly changed by Christ, you've been truly saved, then there is going to be a desire in every believer's heart, I want Christ to increase and I want to decrease. And that has to happen by a denial of yourself. Humility is a lost art. We are not humble by nature. We are self-centered, egotistical, and arrogant in our own nature. All of us, including me. We want reputation. We want fame. We want people to credit us. Sometimes even if we do something for somebody else, I know we're supposed to do our alms in private, but we want someone to take notice and say, look what I've done. I'm a great servant of Christ. And John's response is, no, 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 no. He increases, I decrease. That's the way that it works. That's as simplified as we can put it this morning, right? But all of us are guilty of wanting credit. We even want credit in our jobs. We want credit in our families. We want someone to tell us our value. But you know, even in your job, it's not about increasing you. It's about Christ being increased. Wherever you work, you ought to increase Christ and decrease self. It's not just for the preachers. Every person who sits in a congregation in a church would say, listen, yeah, every preacher should increase Christ and he should decrease himself. We'd agree 100% to that. But what about those who are not preachers and, and the, that term full-time ministry? That principle's for all of us. Now notice John's answer. I love this. John answered and said... He doesn't acknowledge the fame. He doesn't acknowledge it. He acknowledges God. He says, John answered and said, A man can receive nothing except it be given him from heaven. That is about as clear of a statement of humility as you're ever going to see. A man receives nothing except it come from heaven, except it's been given him from heaven. There is no spiritual power except what comes from God. There is absolutely nothing that you have within yourselves that is given by your own power, by your own strength. It's all given by God. Everything you are today, everything I am today, is all because God has given that directly from heaven. That's all that I am today. There is no such thing as a self-made man or a self-made woman. There is, they do not exist. Even the unjust, lost person today, the unbeliever today, owes what he or she has to the ordaining hand of God. Every bit of it. Every dime that they have, they owe it to God. God provides grace. Not saving grace, but He provides grace to every single person. And those people that experience good in things in their life, they receive that by the hand of God. But John is speaking about even what he's been given to do. John could have put his own name and he could have, he could have said, John can receive nothing except it was given to me by God. You could insert John's name there and that's what he's saying. 
He says, verse 28, ye yourselves bear me witness, or you've heard me say that I said I am not the Christ. Now, he said that all the way back uh, when they were first began talking to him. He said, I'm not the Christ. By the way, John the Baptist would receive no worship. John here literally says, who am I to argue with God? If he gives more power to his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, I don't have the ability to argue about that. Folks, him increasing and us decreasing comes down to the very simple principle of bowing to the sovereign will of God in your life. We still don't fully understand all of God's sovereignty. We don't fully, we don't fully understand it all. But bowing to the sovereign will of God is even bowing when you don't understand. Sovereign God is, a sovereign will of God is not, does my intellect understand this? It is simply saying, I'm bowing to the will of the God who has saved me, whether I understand it or not. Why is God letting me lose everything? Because it's under the sovereign will of God. Job could have looked and he questioned it. Even in the book of Job, as we read it on a Wednesday night, Job could have said, what did I do to deserve this God? Well, folks, the reality is, and I'm saying this, and I'm treading very lightly here, we all deserve what Job got. We all deserve what Job lost. Job had no reason and no place where he could simply say, wow, you know, Job needs to increase here. Job must increase, God must decrease. No, even Job in the sovereign will and bowing to the sovereign will of God Job had to even say, he must increase, I must decrease. Anything we receive, it comes from the hand of God. God's ministers are utterly dependent. Every person who's ever stood up before you and preached a single message to you is utterly dependent upon the Lord for whatever happens. He's not sent to convince you. He's not sent to even persuade you. He is simply called to proclaim and point you to Christ that's his whole job. The results are not mine. The results are not yours. You might say, preacher, what if I do everything to increase God and my life gets harder? It might. It might. But increasing him and decreasing self is one of the hardest principles you and I will ever have to learn. It's as easy to memorize the verse as Jesus wept not as easy to live. I am not the Christ, but that I am sent before him. He continues to reply to these Jewish uh, individuals who are causing this strife. John reminds them of what he'd already told them. And this is what he said in John 1.20, and he confessed and denied not, but confessed, I am not the Christ. John, from the very beginning of his ministry, only claimed to be the voice sent by God to bear witness of Christ. That was his whole purpose for living. Folks, your sole purpose, my sole purpose for being left here after God saved me is to be his voice. That's why there is no such thing as full-time ministry. Wherever God puts you, whatever God has you in, you are to be the voice of God. You are to not speak, put words for him. You proclaim his truth. You may never stand at your workplace and stand behind a podium and preach a message, but you're living one every single day. 
You're living one in your family. You may, not even, you may not even have a Bible open in front of you at your table, but you're living, you are to be a living example of increasing Christ and decreasing self. That's, the, that's why God left us here. He simply is bearing witness of what God has called him to do. And then notice he says in verse 29, now by the way, this is verse 29, I've got written in the margin of my Bible, this is the language of faith. This is, this is what a person who has faith would say. He that hath the bride is the bridegroom. But the friend of the bridegroom, which standeth and heareth him, rejoiceth greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. This my joy, therefore, is fulfilled. John completely deflects any fame, any notoriety, and he said the only one he that has the bride is the bridegroom. The bride is a reference to the church. It's a reference to the elect. It's a reference to those who are in Christ. The bridegroom is Christ. He that has the bride, the church, the elect, is the bridegroom. That's Christ. But the friend of the bridegroom, this is what John calls himself. And here's what he says what a friend of the bridegroom doesn't do. Or first what he does, he stands and hears him. He rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. He said, while you're trying to make me, self, make me give myself of reputation, he said, as a friend of the bridegroom, let me tell you what I believe. I believe that as I hear the bridegroom speak, I rejoice greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. You know, how much do we rejoice when we hear the name of Christ being proclaimed? When we hear the name of Christ being preached, what if you someday do something marvelous for God and you get no credit for it? Would you be able to stand back like John and say, listen, I just marvel that the voice of God was heard and I rejoice that people heard the preaching of Christ. Oh, there's so many lessons we could learn about that. We could, so many things we could learn and say, wait a minute, I've got my eyes in the wrong place. I want credit. I want, I want all these things. I want people to tell me instead of saying, boy, I just rejoice that Christ got preached there. He that has the bridegroom is, he that has the bride rather is the bridegroom. Christ is the spiritual husband of the true Israel. It is, it is the covenant Lord. And by the way, that's it's a part of even the Gentiles who've been grafted into this beautiful organization, what's called the church. How did, why does Christ have the right to be the bridegroom? Because he died for the bride. Christ has rights that none of you, none of us have. Jesus Christ, the spotless Lamb of God, died for the bride. He gave himself for the church. No one else in human history will ever or has ever done anything like that that has been redeeming. Men die every day. It doesn't redeem another man's soul. It doesn't do anything for them. But Jesus Christ died for his people. We belong to the bridegroom. The bride belongs to the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom isn't jealous. He's not envious. He's truly a friend. He loves the bridegroom because he wants the bridegroom's name to go forth. He says, my, his, my joy is fulfilled. 
Imagine being so overwhelmed with the joy of God, you could care less if anybody follows you or not. John had no interest in gaining a following. He had no interest in even maintaining what he had already built. John's joy was fulfilled when he saw, and I get ready, when he saw the bridegroom glorified and lifted up. That's, when, that's why John, when he says, he must increase. See, context matters, folks. That statement just taken out of context, I read that verse just by itself. If I would have stopped there, it would not have put the pieces together quite as clearly as they now are. What was going on to make John say, he must increase, but I must decrease? Now we know the narrative. This is not just a, I don't know how popular this one is. I don't know if I've ever seen it in a Christian store or anything like that. I know certain Bible verses are very popular to buy to put on your wall. I don't know if this one's very popular. I mean, we've all seen, as for me in my house, we will serve the Lord. Great, important. I would, I would advise you to go back and read the whole chapter of where that verse is found. It's much more than just a simple little mantra. It's, it really is asking for your whole life. It's easy to post it on the wall. You could go home and take a, a, a post-it note, post it on your mirror so that you get up tomorrow morning and you say, he must increase, but I must decrease. And if that's all you ever do with it, it's just going to be a verse that you use to get you through the day. The reality is the attitude. You know, it's easy to show humility. It's a whole different story to actually be humble. Humility is easy to outwardly show. I could be very happy for you outwardly and should be very humble and be very angry at you for taking what was mine. John could have said, I did all the work. The reason they're coming to him is because I was the forerunner. John says no such thing. And then he says in verse 31, he says, he that cometh from above is above all. John makes no bones about this. No matter how good a man may be, including John the Baptist himself, he's still a flesh. And even when he is given over to eternal things, even when he's doing the work of God, can I tell you this happens to every single preacher who's ever stood behind a pulpit? His flesh sneaks out. The best preacher you've ever known, his flesh still gets in the way. Because the one thing you don't know about him is you don't know what he's actually thinking when he says it. You don't know what his motives are. When Jesus Christ speaks, his flesh never gets in the way. You never have to wonder, is Jesus Christ speaking eternal things or is he speaking fleshly things? Every time you and I speak, we're speaking one of two things. We're speaking eternal things or we're speaking fleshly things. And by the way, we probably speak twice as many fleshly things as we do eternal things. Because the flesh is what comes natural. Wanting applause comes natural. What doesn't come so natural is speaking eternal things. He that cometh from above is above all. With Christ, there is nothing of the flesh. John gives these contrasts between the Savior and himself. You go beginning in verse 28 and all the way down through verse 31. He's talking about he is the Christ. I'm only sent here before him. 
He, Christ, is the bridegroom. I'm just a friend. He says, he must increase. I must decrease. Here's what John understood about himself. I am simply of the earth. I speak of earthly things. I speak of things which pertain to the earth. But he is the Lord Christ from above, from heaven. He has no limitations. He does know all things. He is above all things. And what he hath seen and heard, that he testifieth, and no man receiveth his testimony. Now, notice very carefully what he says. What he hath seen and heard, that he testifieth, no man receiveth his testimony. When you read this, it almost sounds as what John is saying, is that what Jesus has spoken about, no man receiveth. This is not without a qualification. Because look at verse 33. He that hath received his testimony hath set his seal that God is true. There's a compare and contrast here. Many don't receive his testimony. Folks, to this day, to this day, many do not receive the testimony of Christ. But some do. If you're here today and saved, you receive the testimony of Christ and you have set this seal that he or God is true. I don't have to convince believers this morning that God is true. If I have to convince you today that God is true today, if I still have to convince you of that, there's a problem with your faith. It may be that you're not yet converted. You're not fully comprehending, understanding fully who God is. But God's children do not have to be convinced that God is true. Today, every believer hears these words and they say, I believe that. I believe it all because God says it. It's his words. Now remember, John has been primarily speaking to Jews, and let's not lose the context here. Think about Israel today. Think about the Jews throughout scriptures. As a whole, most reject him as a whole. Most of Israel says, no, I'm not receiving the testimony of Christ. I don't want anything to do with Christ. But those that have received, and by the way, we'll talk about this in the morning service. He that hath received his testimony, whether he's Jew or he's Gentile, knows God to be true. He that hath received his testimony, Christ, hath set his seal that God is true. To set the seal, it literally is the term or the phrase that means to certify or confirm. To set a seal upon something, it means certify, ratify, proclaim it as being the absolute truth. It cannot be denied. Folks, by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ today, every believer, every single believer says, God has fulfilled in Christ everything that he promised the Messiah to be. So when I look to Christ, I look at Christ as one who has never failed at anything. Not one promise has failed. He has been entirely what the Bible said he would be, including the saving of my wretched soul from top to bottom. I add nothing to that. Not a single good work. Not a single good thing that I say. You could walk out of here today and be as humble as the world has ever seen. You could demonstrate humility and not a single day of humility would earn you a point with God. 
But yet, even though there's no points being earned, even though I'm not getting extra credit for being a superhuman servant of God, my call should be, he must increase, I must decrease. Even if that means I lose my very life to point people to Christ. John knew it. John knew that his life was going to end up in prison. He knew ultimately he would end up losing his life for the cause of God. Verse 35, or verse 34, for he whom God hath sent, God the Father hath sent, that's the Son, speaketh the words of God. For God giveth not the Spirit by measure unto him. Christ possesses the Holy Spirit without limit to carry out the divine work of God the Father. Folks, how do we today carry out the divine work of God? Through the Holy Spirit that indwells every believer today. We don't teach that a Holy Spirit comes and goes. We don't believe that one day you have him, the next day you don't, because that means you, would lose it, you are losing your salvation. If the Holy Spirit of God has left you one thing, and he hasn't, but if he had left you one time in the time that you've been quote-unquote converted and saved, if he left you one time, you're serving a false God. He never left you once. When we pray for God to do something, we don't have to pray for the Holy Spirit to come down because the Holy Spirit is already indwelling every single one of you. So when he says he must increase, I must decrease, how in the world are you and I going to do that? By the divine power of the Holy Spirit of God. We're going to have to live yielded to the Holy Spirit. See, we all like having the Holy Spirit. I've never, I've, every Christian I've said, do you like having the Holy Spirit? They all say, yeah. Do you like yielding to him? Not so much. Are we being honest? You all love yielding to God. You have no problems with it. You know what yielding often means? It means, wow, I got to be really, really humble. I have to, I got to move away from me and I got to move to letting God have all the credit for everything. Oh, I've got to confess sin that's left in my life. I, God, the Holy Spirit is pointing me to repentance. And yet, I don't want to repent. Why? Because that means i got to admit I've done something wrong. I have to repent of my sin. All things the Father has given. Notice, I love this, verse 35. The Father loveth the Son and hath given all things into his hand. The world says, how could God the Father love a Son that he sent to a cross to die? Yet the greatest demonstration of love is God the Father sending the Son to the cross. That is the greatest demonstration of love. The world says that is a bloody religion. That's awful. That's terrible. But without Christ going to that cross, you and I don't talk about glorifying God. We don't talk about increasing Him. We're lost. All things pertaining to what? The universe, to life, the new heavens, the new earth, the church. If you can think of anything else, God has sent, loves the Son, and has given all things to the Son. And then I love what John says here. He that believeth on the Son hath everlasting life. Present possession. If you have the Son this morning, if you have Christ this morning, you have everlasting life. And he that believeth not the Son shall not see life. Folks, it is black and white. 
If you have the Son, you have everlasting life. If you don't have Christ, you will not see everlasting life, but instead the wrath of God abideth on him. That's present. Right now, as a child of God, the wrath of God does not abide on me. And praise God for that. But as an unbeliever today, if you still have not placed your faith and trust and repented of your sin and believed the gospel of Christ, you are still in a place where God's wrath is upon you. But the call is simply believe on the Son and have everlasting life. Trust in Christ for everything. I think if we had a view of the wrath of God, I think our focus would change. Lots of preachers have tried to illustrate the wrath of God. I'm not even going to dare try that this morning. I've heard, I've heard enough demonstrations of what hell is, and the Bible gives enough descriptions for me to not have to add a single word to what hell actually is. But when we talk about the wrath of God... And I want you to stay with me for a minute. Here's what the world's way is. Get your eyes off of the wrath of God and just get it on the love of God because God is always loving. Remember I said this a few months ago, even in wrath, God is still loving. But you know what the, the greatest deception of the devil is? One of his greatest deceptions is to get your eyes off of the wrath of God and just squarely put it just on the love. I like the Bible as long as it talks about the good things of God, but don't talk about the wrath of God. Don't talk about the punishment for sin. Don't talk about eternal damnation. Remember, this is all about where your eyes are. The Pharisees wanted their eyes to be on the law. Okay, I want you to remember what I'm saying right now, because this is going to go right into our study of Romans this morning. The Pharisees wanted the eyes on the law... And if your eyes are on the law, they're off of Christ. Okay, the law has value. But if I get so enamored with the law, I get so enamored with one aspect of God, and I miss the other aspects of God, John preached the whole counsel of God. What's interesting, John the Baptist didn't run across the countryside saying this. Now, hold on to your pews. God loves you. Do you know, that's the single most used phrase in evangelism today, is God loves you. Not repent and believe the gospel. Why? What appeals more to the flesh? God loves you. As a child of God this morning, I will tell you this, God does love you. But God's love cannot be separated from his wrath. If wrath of God doesn't exist, then why did the cross even happen? Because the cross was the full wrath of God being poured out. That's why I said I can't fully describe that to you. But the whole wrath of God was poured out on Jesus Christ, he who knew no sin. The wrath of God was poured out on Christ for my sin, not for his. Folks, notice how beautifully that those who believe, who believe not, they will not see everlasting life, that those that will believe will have everlasting life. Notice John preaches Christ. He sets him forth as the glorious bridegroom for his church, the bride. 
John places a clear distinction between Christ and his servants. And some of John's last words, they're powerful, and they're words that will prove for the most part to be his final words. Folks, resist this morning the tendency to boast in yourself. Resist the tendency to boast in the ability of one speaker over another. Resist the ability or the success and view that everything you have is a gift from God. John the Baptist had a very low view of himself. Folks, the American church needs a good dose of a low view of itself because it has turned into nothing more than look at me. If a person leaves the church that we are saying, boy, did you see that person? Did you see that place? Did you hear that person sing? We're doing it wrong. If they leave here and they say, we saw and heard Christ today, then we know we're doing something right. But let me tell you something. Most people, when they hear the name of Christ being proclaimed and preached, don't like it. We have this idea, preach Christ, and everybody will just flood in. No, preach Christ, and most people will flood out. Why? Because they don't love the name of Christ. Coming to Christ means humility. Coming to Christ means you must decrease, he must increase. Your very, your very conversion, you had to humble yourself. Set your affection upon Christ today. How wonderful it is to know that the bridegroom has the bride. He must increase. I must decrease.